Twice a week, Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay dissect the biggest topics in Black culture, politics, and sports on their show, Higher Learning. They discuss the most important and timely conversations while also frequently inviting guests on the podcast and occasionally debating each other. Check out Higher Learning on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, Dane Whitman on the streets, Icarus in the sheets, it's Angie Griffold! Woo! Just trying to parse that. Yeah, there's a that. lot to break down, man. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the Eternals in the second a half bit? of the show. A lot about the Eternals in the second Be half of the show. Be honest with the people, Chris. Be honest. Do you know we had to... You had to bless these heads with our MCU takes, right? I'm so eager. I can't remember the last time I've been been this excited to talk about a movie I saw in the theater, mainly because I hadn't seen a movie in the theater in 21 months. (laughs) Uh, Greenwald, there's a little bit of stuff I want to get to. I'm feeling great. I got... I got nothing but you Moderna can, pumping through the system it. right now. I got boosted. <laughs> I'm doing this. Is Chris is on a tear ice right in now. veins injection? Uh, like gestures to everybody I see. Chris, you white knuckled it with the sugar pill shot for like seven and a half months. You I were know. just in the world, just vulnerable. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know. You never wavered. I never saw you shake. I was impressed, but I was now good. I was good, man. Um, shout out to J and J. Shout out to the to the homies at Moderna. We're we're coming back, Andy. Uh, you want to know why I also have a little bit of pep in my step? Tell me. It's Chris Apalooza. It's my Burning <laughs> Man right now. You wake up one day and you're like, yeah, you know what? What's the, what is there to watch right now? And then you find mm-hmm. out it's all there. It's all there, and it's just for you. It was made for you. So right now. I'm just like overwhelmed with love for the world because I've got Yellowstone and I've got Narcos Mexico season three and I'm just going back and forth. I got I got my guy Casey Dutton out there on the highways on Yellowstone. I've got Walt Breslin played by Scoot McNary. Just the DEA of El Paso is strong out here in Narcos Mexico season three. It's a great time to be me. It's a great time to be alive and watching television. I can't wait to talk about it with you. You also... um... It's it's almost election day, and we're going to elect a new mayor of Kingstown. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. You know, Curtis Lewa has run a good race, but I do think that's right. Mayor Jeremy Renner is going to take it, and I have to say, I think Kyle Chandler is the mayor, isn't he? You you know what, Chris? I can't wait to find out. That's the you, that's you'll the have to you'll have to tell me. I just wanted to point out that you know this is we 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 often cite this 
which is a key, you know, this is really a window into our finger on the pulse uh, vision of the world. But you guys remember, you guys, everybody remembers how the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman would be like, (laughs) my taxi driver in Mumbai commented to me that his recent smartphone caught, and then then he'll extrapolate like at least a month's worth of columns off of that. That's how I feel about the billboards here in our city of Los Angeles. And, you know, you can kind of tell which billboards are up for ego management. You can tell which are up for seasonality. Obviously, there were a lot of Halloween horror movies up uh, up recently. You commented I would on like, that. I yeah. would like to particularly shout out the pornography company that has decided to really big boy its game up and purchase, apparently in perpetuity, the billboard that we pass when arriving at my daughter's school every day. So that's a fun one. I got to tell you, I'm a little concerned about the billboard industry because yeah. I was driving down, I think Melrose or maybe Beverly the other day, okay. and there's just a giant billboard for a mall in Miami. And it's like, hey, huh. you coming to Miami? <laughs> check out <laughs> check out Balfour Grove. And oh, it's just so- like... A really great mall in Miami. That's interesting. So you're suggesting that the billboards that I'm seeing are less uh, a window into the relative robustness and health of the particular industry being advertised and more a savage indictment of our failing billboard economy. Thanks, Sleepy Joe. That's what you're saying? (laughs) That's what I'm saying, these, If these Democratic centrists would get off their ass, we could save the billboard industry. That's what What you're saying. What I want from my billboards, I think the billboards should pivot to algorithmic advertising the way like when you get to the bottom of like an actual Mm -hmm. article on like ESPN or something. And then at the bottom, it's like, find out why your teeth are about to fall out. You know, oh, six ways oh, to the, use peas, you know, <laughs> that, that would definitely increase car accidents, though, yeah. wouldn't it? Because they're like, here's something you need to find out. But wait till you get home or park. But so all I wanted to say is, and, and you've thrown a curveball here, as you so often do. It's why you're the best at what you do, why you're my mayor of Kingstown always. But uh, I, I thought prior to beginning this this monologue that I had some sense of these things. So, like, for example. I feel relatively certain that I know where the showrunner of the Paramount Plus program Guilty Party lives. Okay. I don't know anything about the show. I don't know who the showrunner is. But judging by where the billboard is, I think I know where the showrunner lives. Okay. Okay. You don't have to blow up that person's spot. Yeah. No. God bless. That said, the mayor of Kingstown, coming from your boy Taylor Sheridan, starring your other boys, Jeremy Renner and Kyle Chandler, Chandler. and your forever queen of... Kingstown or Queen of Queenstown, Diane Weist. Um, That show is clearly something else because from a certain vantage point coming down Highland from the Hollywood Bowl, there's not one billboard for it. (laughs) There's not two billboards for it. There are three complementary billboard pieces in different parts of the heart of Hollywood celebrating the show. They do that sometimes on Sunset where you'll be driving and it'll like the billboards will almost like Either they'll either tell a story or mm-hmm. there's so many cast members they are contractually required to feature yes. on the billboard that yes. like the the Lucifer the final season of Lucifer has like three billboards on sunset because they've got like nine people who had it written into their deal. I'm above sunset, baby. <laughs> and Zendaya is Michi, which is still, you know, the great defining thing of our time. Um I I'm very happy for you. I I I do feel like I ought to um strap on my stirrups and watch some of this hyper-masculine programming with you. you know, I'd like you to watch Mayor of Easttown. It's, it's it's a tough ask to be like, get into Yellowstone Kingstown. season four. Kingstown. I'd, I'd like you to watch Kingstown with me. Right. It's a tough ask to get in on Yellowstone four seasons in, although it's the most popular show on cable. 
I, I mean, that is where this is, I'll check some out. I would love to talk to you about it. But just from an outsider perspective, it's really hard to even put into context how insane these numbers are. That Yellowstone is a basic cable show. Mm-hmm. It is on Paramount Network. That is near impossible to stream. Like it is, next, yes. And yet it, eight, the previous seasons are on Peacock, but the next day you have to have the Paramount app mm-hmm. to watch Yellowstone, I believe, with commercials. Eight million people watch the premiere. Now, I'm not saying that I know a thing or two about trying to debut a series on basic cable when it's not available on streaming the next day or indeed for a year and a half. I'm, I'm not saying I know anything about that, but eight million people is an insane number. I mean, that is a hit show, the likes of which we don't really fathom. And I will also say, and we've mentioned it before, but I feel like it's worth coming back to, it's not always easy to pinpoint like the most crucial inflection points in an industry's shift while they're happening in real time. But I do believe that the previous regime at Paramount's decision to sell the streaming rights of Yellowstone to Peacock mm-hmm. will be looked at, it will be studied, <laughs> it will be written about in books. So, because the ripple effect of all of this is so wild, there will never be a deal like that again, ever. Is it similar to the quote unquote, the, the decision that AMC made to I mean, like AMC obviously didn't have the infrastructure at the time to start a streaming service to show Breaking Bad on their service. But is it akin to that? Is it akin to AMC offloading all of their streaming rights to Netflix and then finding out that most people thought Breaking Bad was a Netflix show? It's a great question. No, because Breaking Bad is not an AMC show. Breaking Bad is a Sony Sony show. show. Gotcha. That is also from the older world. And Sony, at this point, I mean, they certainly build themselves this way. They're like the last major independent standing. They do Mm -hmm. not have a streaming service, which on the one hand gives them some exciting flexibility. On the other hand, really, really, really puts them in jeopardy because Mm -hmm. they don't have a natural home for things. And now they have to fight twice as hard to elbow out of the way the in-house products. Yellowstone, as we said, massive, massive hit. The kind of hit that can not just sustain a more traditional cable network, but can absolutely be the foundation to build a successful streaming service. Paramount Plus wants to be a successful streaming service. It doesn't have its blue chip player. It right. farmed it out. It's playing in Europe. It, it's it's such a wild thing. And that will never happen again. I mean, these services, these studios are going to, if they're lucky enough to make a hit, they're keeping that in-house all the way across the board. And you could argue that the Taylor Sheridan verse, I mean, he made a hit show. He's going to get rewarded. He's going to get more opportunities. But it is in some ways, I don't want to say an overreaction, but it is definitely a reaction to losing Yellowstone where they're like, we're just going to have him pump out as many other Yellowstones as possible to keep the vibe, to keep the connections. We understand that Paramount Network and Paramount Plus are related also to hopefully catch fire one more time and bring those 8 million eyeballs onto our streaming service. So Kingstown is on Sunday night and on the the season opener of Yellowstone, there was not one but two essentially backdoor pilots. Now one was a scene that was thematically coherent with the episode of Yellowstone but was essentially a scene from... 1883, which is the Yellowstone origin story set in the Wild West with Tim McGraw and Sam Elliott. And then later Love in it. Yellowstone, there was, without giving anything away, a character is is asked to go to Texas to work on a new horse ranch, which will be, I oh, think it's called the, the Four Sixes. 
the reverse lonesome dove. It is a the reverse dove. A very rarely seen <laughs> yeah. uh, move. Very good. So, and then there's, uh, I believe, uh, he's also got like an oil baron show coming. So he's busy. You know, it'll be interesting to see what, like, what his creative involvement can be in all of these things. He still is the sole credited writer for every episode of Yellowstone. And so, so wild. And I was reading an interview with him where he was talking about how there was one point during the season four production of Yellowstone where he was like sleeping till two, would write an episode of Yellowstone and then would go shoot those who wish me dead at night. <laughs> I mean, look, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. <laughs> That's true. It, I mean, there are people out there. We've met one, our buddy Chuck Klosterman. There are people out there who love writing. They love it. It's fun for them. I think these people are insane. Yeah. And I've been a professional writer for 22 years. But yeah, there are there are people like that. He might be one of them. Aaron Sorkin also loves writing. Aaron Sorkin loves language. Let's talk about Aaron Sorkin because I... I I, you know, he, you hit me up. You were like, did you see this Being Ricardo's trailer? Being the Ricardo's trailer. And I did. And I'm going to see this movie uh, just like I see everything that Aaron Sorkin does because I'm I'm just a, a big fan of his writing, as we both know. <laughs> um, but you you seemed like you seemed like you had just been hit in the head with a sack of potatoes when, when this happened. Well, I, I was really perplexed by it, you know, um, I, I, it's funny, and I don't know if this is just the way my brain worked as a critic or it's a factor of being on this podcast or it's just a sort of natural allergy to Sorkin's project writ large. But I did watch this trailer. It's an Amazon original film now, right? So it will be on Amazon Prime when it debuts. Two Oscar winners, Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem playing uh, Lucy and Ricky in a lovingly recreated period piece about making... I Love Lucy show and some turbulent times in their marriage, et cetera, et cetera. But I definitely saw this trailer with a very cynical industry eye where I watched this and I was like, I'm sorry, excuse me. <laughs> Who is this for? Like, I, and I mean that, and I, that's, that's such a, that's not a great question to ask. I apologize. I think it's, they, they all chase their muse and it looks like the production detail is amazing and J.K. Simmons is going to be great as, what's his name? The other guy. <laughs> sorry, sorry, TV historians. But like, I want to be clear about something. And I don't want to put Kaya on the spot. But I did want to ask Kaya a question here, which okay. is, Kaya, have you ever I'm watched? okay. It's Kaya. <laughs> you gave, <laughs> as her legal guardian, you are Cersei to her sprite. Um, Kaya, have you ever watched an episode of I Love Lucy? Do you have opinions about this subject matter in particular? No. And... No, I'm sorry. So when I, I, you do not need to apologize. And I'm not, I, I'm just curious if, if when we say Lucy and Ricky, if this mm -hmm. has any like cultural currency for you or does the fact that this is a high class, fancy people making this movie make it interesting <laughs> as a historical, you know, historical document for you, potentially. I mean, I definitely have knowledge of I Love Lucy. Like there's the scene and I think it was a chocolate factory, right? Yeah, she's popping yeah. them in. And you know, I have, like culture, I have cultural knowledge of I Love yeah. Lucy. It, so it, I'm not, this isn't gotcha. I knew that you as a smart person in the world had cultural awareness of it, but I guess does it, are you like, oh great, I can't wait to learn more about the lady eating the chocolates on the line. Like what, what, what does this represent to you? Um, what does this represent? I mean, it's just, it's just like, I think that's I, the right. I think you already answered it with that exasperated sigh. That is, I believe, 
the reaction one a large percentage of the people have when Aaron Sorkin settles down to teach us something. That, that's generally my feeling. It represents to me yet another uh, movie where Nicole Kidman wears a bad wig. <laughs> there and it some is. prosthetics, I think. Yeah. Here's the here's the, I, I, the case I just don't for get it, it. Right. It's bizarre to me. Aaron Sorkin loves the dawn of the golden age of the invention of television. I mean, it's referred to, you know, even on Sports Night. You know, there's the famous William Macy monologue about the invention of TV. It's obviously a time period that fascinates him. By all accounts, he's taking several years worth of like narrative developments, I guess, and compressing them into like a week. So it's another one of his kind of Steve Jobs-esque like tricks where he's going to just make everything happen in just a matter of days. And uh, yeah, like I do, I think it's going to be something that tells us a lot about where what, how we live now. Probably not. But um, I'll tell you who he's making it for when you're like, why, why did he, yeah. who is he making this for? He That's is me. making it for older Academy voters. Right. They will love this. They will love the movie star aspect of it. They will love the tribute to their industry. They will love feeling seen, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I think it definitely will. As long as it doesn't get like roasted, I could, I could definitely see Nicole Kidman getting nominated, Javier Bardem right. getting nominated, Sorkin getting nominated. So strap in, you know, man. I, I think he could see that too. I, You know what? I might be a little bit bitter because this was supposed to be Cate Blanchett. Uh-huh. Who's who I think I would be much I would be much more interested. Was it really supposed to be this. her? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. didn't know that. Um, yeah, she was she was announced. Anything else you wanted to hit before we get into Eternals? Did you want to talk a little bit about oh, did you see the Stranger Things trailer? I did. Yeah. You excited um, I you excited for these these kids to enter deep late puberty? Did not recognize any of them. When did you get off the Stranger Things train? I um Season three was released, I think, when I was in Albuquerque in production. Yeah. So I watched some of it, but I just realized as I was watching the trailer, I'd never finished it. So it was well, it was not for lack of I didn't not watch it intentionally. I was watching it and then I I kind of forgot. Season four is was shot somewhat in Albuquerque. I don't know if you oh could, great. Yeah. So you got that going for you. I am excited for this. The Stranger Things trailer that we're referring to sets the action, at least in the beginning in California. Millie Bobby Brown's character is in high school, I presume, and uh, she's going back to visit Mike for spring break, and that's when I guess it's all going to pop off. But it it looked cool. Like I think that um, my whole thing with Stranger Things was always like that the Mayu was more interesting than the story. Like I was mm-hmm. always more interested in this kind of uh, anthology of. 80s pop cultural gestures than I was the story of like what's happening in the upside down with the demigorgon but you know different strokes <laughs> you think some people are like deep into demigorgon fanfic yeah you know what <laughs> fucking Chloe Zhao is deep into some demigorgon fanfic you want to get into the Eternals and talk about these <laughs> these I'm, I'm celestials so and deviants all right I'm so um, excited to talk about this movie let's take a quick break we'll come back we'll talk about the Eternals This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Andrew. Uh, MCU is back. The Eternals is upon us. The lowest Rotten Tomatoed Marvel mm-hmm. movie in, mm. in how dare you? God knows how long. Uh, directed by Oscar winner Chloe Zhao. Uh, you know, starring Richard Madden, Gemma Chan, what Kit Harrington on Facetime. We're gonna do a spoilered conversation about yes. this because I'm I'm very excited to do so. Brian Tyree Henry, obviously, also in this movie. Uh, Let's just start general. Let's start big picture. What did you think? What a ride I had with this movie. And one of the reasons why I am so excited to talk to you about it is because I was, I did a 180 on it midway, which is very rare. I think you know, and listeners know, that when I am out on something early, whether it is stubbornness or pride or whatever, I tend to stay out. And it's hard to imagine being more out on something than I was in the first 20 to 40 minutes of this two hour and 40 minute film. I what was, was the first thing that you were watching where you were like, oh shit, like I'm done. What ancient Mesopotamia looked like. <laughs> you know, so literally the dawn of time is when I stepped out. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, oh no. And I started like, the artisans in the earlier generations of the Whitman family, I was crafting with stones and cursed metals and rocks, crafting my takes like blades and what I was going to, to say. Yeah. And frankly, one of them, I, I, before we get into what to me it was a shocking, shocking turn that left me not just weirdly fond of the movie, I do think more emotionally engaged at times with it in the second half than I think I have been in maybe any Marvel content. Okay. Um, So this is a journey that you guys are going on. So buckle up. But I did want to say one thing at the top just in terms of how to frame the conversation because I want to, there's some things I want to, some juicy, juicy morsels I want to really get into and some things that, you know, I, that I'm really positive about. And I think that the thought that I kept having at the beginning was I went, maybe I have this thought all the time. I think you might as well, Chris. I was bemoaning the fact that we live in such an awful binary time. Mm-hmm. Because I want to say at the top, I just think we're not equipped, not just this podcast or podcast in general, but just a Rotten Tomatoes Twitter 
hot take, instant reaction, box office universe, we're really not in a place where we can have a discussion that says, that holds two things to be true at once, which is, it is a, I just think it is objectively good that the largest corporation and entertainment conglomerate in the world did something this fucking weird sure. and entrusted it to an Oscar-winning young woman of color to direct with a cast this diverse and interesting and unexpected and allowed it to go where it was going to go. Some places good, some places less good. I just think that is objectively a good thing for the world. Uh-huh. It is also possible that when you support that, it can go all the way the fuck off the rails and produce something that I was going to say is, and instead I'm going to qualify by saying is at times, insanely, almost ludicrously incomprehensible, if not kind of bad at times. And, 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 and even worse, I think an extension of this kind of binary culture that we're in is that the swings that we get are all $500 million all in with production and promotion swings. You know what I mean? So you can't just be like, not just from a, I mean, I'm not a stakeholder in the Walt Disney Company. I don't care what they do with their money, but the stakes of everything is enormous. And then it's, and then it's either celestial or deviant, you know? And if, the, I mean, sorry, eternal or deviant. And if there's one thing we learned from the movie, things evolve, man. Yeah. Nobody's just one thing. Everybody's a little bit of everything else. So that was what I was crafting before the Eternals took the detour to suburban wherever the fuck to visit Fastos and his human family and Brian Tyree Henry's face about protecting his son. And I was like, holy shit, I love them? I love so the Eternals? You loved, what is happening? You loved just the fact that it humanized like a godlike character were you was it that it tapped into your own protective instincts as a parent like what what, what do you think it was with that it got you there was something god there's just i mean it's it's very hard to scale something this enormous there are so many little pathways and cul-de-sacs i want to talk about like kit harrington on facetime like angelina jolie delivering one of the strangest movie star performances in the history of movie stars but there was something, and it's odd to say this. I mean, the the cast of this movie is enormous, and yet no one is in it other than the people who are in it. You know, there are no other than like early Mesopotamia and like Tenochtitlan. Like there are no, we don't under, we don't see humanity. We don't see people or places we recognize. Really, it's just beautiful vistas in the Canary Islands or whatever. But there was something. They have a fun that, night out in London in the beginning. You know, <laughs> see, it doesn't end well. No, is that <laughs> does not end super well. Um, there was something about where it ended up that I felt was weirdly vulnerable and tender and kind of human and emotional in a way that isn't normal for these movies. It kind of went places and it's not, and, and the, the, the early headlines, you know, like, Oh, the first Marvel movie with a sex scene. It's like, okay, is that what that was? <laughs> Have you guys that's, that's seen nice. sex before? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, it was, yes. If you are Steve Carell and 40 year old virgin, then yeah. please enjoy a movie sex scene. <laughs> Bravo. But not so much that, but just something kind of, I don't know, broken and vulnerable about the actors and the performances and the choices they were making. It really kind of affected me. And I've had a longer Eternals hangover than I, I've had about any other Marvel movie, which, you know, even the ones that I've adored sat, you know, and had a great time, so much fun. I do not think about them the next day. I do not rewatch them. 
I've been thinking about aspects of Eternals for three days now. Do you chalk that up to the fact that it's it's the biggest game in town right now? Or do you think that there's something inherently in the Chloe of it all that makes you feel this way? And this is another thing that I wanted to get at. I, I truly and honestly do not know. The Chloe of it all is fascinating because, you know, I, I am an admirer of her other films. But, you know, when we talked about Nomadland, it left me kind of cold. So I don't necessarily know if she is the one who warmed up a cold genre. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think that when, in again, in terms of easy binaries, this idea that Marvel as a, as a celestial-sized monolith is interested in stamping out bloodless product and it took Chloe struggling against the machine from within to give it a little bit of feeling. I'm not sure if that's true. I just think she knows how to light Angelina Jolie on a beach, you know? And I mean, she obviously knows more than that, but she, sure. she, but she, but she does that really well. I'm not entirely sure what it was. Maybe on a super meta level, it was that feeling of failure and falling that was kind of shot through this movie. It didn't feel like a superhero itself, you know? Yeah. Like even... You know the the lesser ones, whether it's Ant Man or, or or Captain Marvel or whatever. Like, there's a feeling by the time they come out of post, there's an aura of inevitability to them. You don't really see the cracks; they just roll. Mm-hmm. And this one does not roll. It sprawls and lurches. You know, and there's just something that I found very, as much as a movie this expensive can be, I found weirdly handmade about it. And maybe that is maybe that is Chloe. I yeah, don't. I don't really know. I, I wonder whether or not some of that handmade feeling is whatever the collision is between and like and let's put Chloe as like as like a quotes because who knows like I mean every single frame of this movie might be hers and yes. and just the same way with every Marvel filmmaker there's always the feeling like oh well these fight scenes are ultimately you know done by like a second unit that Marvel has in house but like I will say that the fight scenes in uh, Eternals while I could care less about who was fighting because they were essentially fighting demon dogs. I thought that they were different than say the fight scenes in uh, Captain America civil war. They actually did seem a lot more like some of the Zack Snyder, uh, like action sequences from man of steel, which uh, Chloe has talked about being an admirer of. I did not care for this movie. Um, Like I didn't feel the sense of entertainment. I didn't feel any sense of entertainment, but I also didn't really feel any kind of like emotional connection to it. I don't really want to be like, this movie sucked. What I want to talk about is how it was an interesting confrontation of the idea that, you know, we always talk about there's so much room to play inside of this sandbox. So like, there's Mm -hmm. like all this room for formal innovation and people should get weird. And I want to see the star Wars about like, you know, lawyers hanging out at a bar in Tatooine or something like that. Like we want to see Mm -hmm. like the procedural version of this or the detective version of that. And I think I do, I do. But what, Eternals taught me was that maybe I'm a little bit more cinematically conservative when it comes to these movies than I thought I was. And that there are certain things that previous Marvel movies, as recently as Shang-Chi, do that I think Eternals skipped past or decided to do differently. That I was like, oh, it turns out I actually don't like sad wooden performances by the central characters. Like, I do want... I do want um, Simulu and Aquafina to be kind of joking with each other for an hour and a half before they fight. And Richard Madden and Gemma in like the the sort of central romance of the of the movie, I was like this is this is like watching like 
tree bark grow or something like i can't believe how like staid this weird. is and so it's weird there's a collision there you mentioned Zack snyder and you're right to i think and 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 that dividing line between dc and marvel is is real that the dc heroes by and large are batman aside are gods mm-hmm. and the marvel heroes are you know kids from queens right. and they have different just very very different vibes and themes and tenor and energy because of that and this was a tough one because i think that what seemed to appeal to chloe's directorial sense was the godlike grandeur of it you know this is on the highest possible level these are actually more powerful beings it would seem than thor who is a god you know what i mean they, they and yet whether it was her own interest in it or the marvel mandate there's a scene where they're drinking you know hooch talking about who's going to lead the Avengers. And yeah. that felt as natural as me riding a unicycle down Sunset Boulevard. Like that was just, what are we even doing here? It, 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 similarly, there are moments when you can imagine what this movie could have been if it was truly, you know, as as a company, if Marvel was ready to commit to a different vision for this level of its storytelling. And for me, that that's essentially the, the insane grandeur of Jack Kirby, the, the legendary comic book artist and creator's vision. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the way that if you, if you Google Jack Kirby Celestials or Jack Kirby Eternals and you see the artwork, it is not like anything else you can ever imagine. It, it is tactile and enormous and and disturbing almost in its in its in its scale and size and so there's a celestial in this movie i mean that's crazy to me i love that part of the marvel universe but it's a little bit dimmed from the true insanity of it you know i felt like watching this movie the way to commit to that and maybe even to commit to like the kubrickian nature of it that maybe appealed to 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 chloe Zhao would okay, show people fishing in Mesopotamia and then show a god with lasers coming out of his eyes hovering over the horizon. <laughs> but it's a Marvel movie. We have to have our hands held. So we have to have a, a Chiron explaining. And then we see a spaceship and then we see them arriving and then we see them smiling. And then we see like characters speaking colloquial contemporary English and making references to wristwatches in 6000 BC. It it steps on itself before sure. it can ever truly achieve flight, and I think that w- that that collision between what it could be but what it needed to be, and again, I'm not entirely sure if that's Chloe versus Feige or not. That's just the nature of this. That yeah. was very frustrating in the beginning to me because we ended up in a nowhere place for a it, long it, time. It also felt like they were trying to do the first Avengers movie, Civil War, and Endgame in one yes. movie. So much to get This through. was one of the most, and I, I, Sean and Joanna talked a little bit about this on their pod about it and on the big picture, but like how mystery dependent or how twist mm. dependent the plot is. And to the extent that that explains Richard Madden's performance for two thirds of the movie, that like, why is this guy so uptight? Like, and, and just like seems so unable to like exhibit any emotion when, I mean, I understand they've been alive for eons, so maybe they're not like, cracking up and crying and all that stuff. But, you know, if even if you ascribe some of it to, well, he's going to eventually betray all these people or he's the only one who understands their true mission other than Salma Hayek. So that's why he's acting this way. It just doesn't make for 
entertaining movie watching when that's happening, you know? And if Barry Keown and these other people are, and Kumail are going to have so much personality, it's hard to have the center be so statuesque, you know? There, too, there were also, it's just, there are too many people, you know? I, I get why on some level, but actually, you know what? Let me stop there. I don't know why. Are there so many people because what was central to the idea was, you know, seeding the story, seeding the Marvel Universe with a lot more powerful people? Was it, we need to make more toys? I mean, I don't know. Because if you cut three or four Eternals, and it's about a family of four or five people, then suddenly there's more room for any of them to be people. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't... it, It just fundamentally was a strange choice to do that. And then you could feel the strangeness almost triple when you get to the final collision. And I don't know if it was COVID or personal choice or what, but Kumail pieces out in the final battle. Yeah. That is so, so weird, right? I, I Has anyone reported on why that is? Why a character who is built up and deservedly so as this is a fan favorite, this is going to pop. Can go, you know. Yeah. But then in the final battle, he's like, no, thank you. I will not be here for this. And when the final, the the resolution of the final battle uh, hinges on something taken from the comics called the Unimind, yeah. when all of the Eternals, like, all kind of joined the same 5G network briefly. So theoretically, Kingo was doing that too in his private jet, but he wasn't there for it. What? Um, Yeah, there's some what in there. You know, just to go back to what I was saying though briefly about thinking maybe I'm, I've decided I'm a little bit more conservative in in this than I thought, cinematically speaking. There's that whole sequence in the Amazon where they, the Eternals have gotten back together or they're starting to get the band back together and they've got to go find Druig, who's was my favorite character in the movie, and they go find Barry I, Keown. I, I, I knew that. I called that. And yeah. they're, gonna, they're going to find Barry Keown in, in the Amazon where he's, I don't know, got building a, like a new society or something of mind, with mind control. He's a little Jim Jonesy down there. Yeah, a little bit. And most of that sequence is shot in some kind of magic hour, either dawn or dusk. It's hard it to tell. It was not magic. <laughs> and it goes on for 25 minutes and it yeah. is essentially like monochrome jungle green with so natural dark. light. And it features two or three very long conversations and then a fight between the Eternals and some deviants. And I was watching and I was like, oh, this is why they shoot this shit in Atlanta. Like, this is why, like, this is why even though it, like, looks ugly to my, like, eye, everything is sort of discernible when you have, if you're going to have 12 superheroes fighting, do it on a, like, airplane landing strip so everybody can see who's who and what's happening. That being said, there were moments in those sequences, like, when uh, Icarus is fighting one of those demons, and I was like, Yo, legitimately, it looks like Icarus is about to die. And it mm-hmm. it kind of like, it does throw you off of your, like, because I think I kind of tune out when fight scenes yes, happen in Marvel because I'm like, well, what's nothing's going to happen here. You I, know what I mean? Like, I found myself like a kind of uncertainty creeping in, which I thought was very welcome. But it kind of got wiped away with like, you know, this, it's really distracting a lot of like the stuff that they're doing. Like you have Angelina Jolie, and you essentially do what they did to Renner in the first Avengers where they're like, you have mind control and don't speak for the entire movie. Like, that's really strange. Yeah. Well, I want to go beat by beat here. I noted the same thing. That was the low point of the movie for me. It was just so dark. And 
hard to tell what was going on. But I think that the feeling of danger and risk does make a difference. We don't know these characters, but yet we have an assumption that some of them will be chum. Uh, that does change your relationship to the fighting scenes that you're seeing. I think that uh, the deviant thing, well, first of all, it did give us one good thing, which is I have spent some time this week just thinking about the moment when it crossed Bob Chapek's desk that the Walt Disney Company now owns the trademark for the term deviant. <laughs> I think that that is exciting and a little worrying. Uh-huh. Some of the rough trade shops that are on, you know, in Sunset and Silver Lake. Like, I, I don't know if they, they now have to have, like, you know, goofy I think those are all whatever. acai bowl places now. You don't That's have to worry fair. about it. Um, the deviants, and I say this politely, suck. Uh, that sucked. Yeah. It was dumb and it sucked and it didn't go anywhere. Like, I understand that that's- They just, we, we just had this problem with Shang-Chi, but like they had Tony Lung. You know what I mean? Like they had an actual like, oh, I have like a, I can see this person. Yeah, right. It, 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 I don't care how much time you spend in R&D designing cool looking metal organic wolves, but it's just not interesting. And ultimately, I think this maybe speaks to Sean and Joanna's point of too many secrets. Shout out the great film Sneakers. Um, ultimately, where this went as a moral conversation slash free-for-all fight between themselves, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But then you still had the diamond dogs running after them and mutating and then talking to them. And then I thought it was actually going to be about how they're not supposed to be enemies. They were just bred to be enemies, but they can evolve into something else. But we needed to give Angelina something to do. So she still has to kill them. That It was just so poorly chosen and uninteresting and felt like groupthink from the top. And frankly, like the Chitari aliens in the first Avengers movie serve all the, the same purpose. All the little we Ultrons in Ultron are the same way. We like they've they've we, always got red shirts to get rid of, but like usually there is some and, sort of face to the evil. And it did lead me to a place that I ended up in, which I was shocked about. And we'll talk about this, I think, in more detail momentarily, which is, boy, I can't wait till we get through this first movie so there can be another one where it could be interesting. I think Marvel movies and, you know, series-based, long-form cinematic storytelling, that's a problem they have, where mm-hmm. the first one feels like, okay, we're introducing 100 people, but trust me, you'll like them later. That's, that's always going to be a problem. But it, this brings me to the Angelina Jolie of it, which we have to carve out some space for. Sure. I was wrong when I said that the Fastos thing was my entry point because I thought Don Lee as Gilgamesh was great. And the fact that the quote-unquote strongest character devotes his endless, well, so we thought, life to taking care of the woman that he respects was cool. That was a very odd and tender relationship and one that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Now... I am so fucking befuddled by Angelina Jolie's performance in this. It, it is like, I, I, I mean, what if you had a decent paycheck job and you paid your bills with the money you earned from your toil and took a modest vacation, stayed in a you know motel every year or whatever, but your house was full of fucking rubies. <laughs> and someone came over one day and was like, Hey, what's up with these rubies? Why are they in your guest bedroom? And you'd be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what to do with them, but they sure are pretty. Right. That's where we are here. Because, Chris, I don't watch as many movies as you do, certainly as many as Sean does. I don't know the number here, but I would have to wager there are not 10, 
how many movie stars do we have? Not like the great actors, but the ones who have so much fucking charisma in the tips of their fingers that your eyeballs turn to them no matter what they're doing. We do not have 10. Maybe we have five or six. She's one of them. She's absolutely one of them. She looked incredible in this movie, just throwing looks and giving attitude and occasionally summoning like, you know, golden shields and blades. And her plot line is she gets a little forgetfully sometimes and needs to take a nap. What are we doing, guys? Why are we wasting a national resource here? I don't, it part was of it might be because anti-flex. she basically was like, can I be in this movie? And they were is like- Is that the case? That is, according to, to the screenwriters, they were like, Angelina wants to be in the movie. So I don't know whether they were like, it's too late. I, maybe she couldn't be Cersei. I don't, I don't even know what, what, that's just speculation. But they were like, she's Thena. We're going to give her three lines, but she's going to be in- all the scenes. That was the other piece of it. I was like, okay, maybe she'll, maybe she'll Kit Harrington it and be like, hey, other Eternals, sorry, something came up, but I'll zoom in, you know, for the group meetings. Right. But she's sitting there in Barry Kewitt's church in, in the Amazon, just sitting there. Petting a lizard. Yeah. Maybe she's just a cool hang. It was <laughs> really bizarre because she, she is, she's great. She's a superhero. You know what I mean? Like that was that was a good thing about the movie, but the weird fumbling of it made no sense. And it also did really mess up the balance if you can ever have a balance with a 10-person strong super team. You know what I mean? Like you, you can feel the labor of the many screenwriters or credited screenwriters trying to sh- spread the offense and share the ball. It's, it's not going to work. You know, it's just not possible. Yeah. There, there are too many scorers. Her on this plot team. line being basically like, there's something up with why she thinks she's from this other planet and everybody's dying. Like, what's going on with that? And like the, you know, disease that they claim. Mad yeah, weary. Mad weary. Where from you the have comics. To- <laughs> not, not spelled the way I spell it when I tell you how I feel at the end of a day of childcare. <laughs> mad weary. Um, I, I want to, I don't want to get too distracted by this, but I do want to ask you about it. Yeah. What did you think about the various points of actual human history represented in this movie? Well, not not a lot. I mean, again, I, 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 I thought it sucked. I think that's fair. We do not have these movies or movies in general. I thought the atomic trouble. bomb thing sucked. Yeah. That was horrendous. Yeah. That was embarrassing. And I mean, it was hard I, to get I, over. And I have to admit, like, no matter what happened in that movie, I would probably be like, fuck, fuck this movie for that. Kind of. I agree with that. So the moment you're talking about, in case this is the moment you listening went to the bathroom, to understand why Fastos has turned his back on all of it, there is a absolutely gross and gratuitous little interlude where he uh, is kneeling in the rubble of Hiroshima. By the way, how do Eternals travel? You know what I mean? Like they're flying on Kingo's private jet and yet they just seem to zip around the world. Is it just because they don't get bored over long flights because their lives are endless? Right. Anyway, Kneeling in the rubble of Hiroshima being like, this is kind of my fault because I gave them a plow 6,000 years ago and this sucks. This is this is why there will never be a truly great, artistically great Marvel cinematic experience because they can't do it. It cannot play in the real sandbox of life. It simply can't. The movie could not cash the check that it wanted to write because baked into Jack Kirby's really out there ideas is that 
everything that humanity has achieved was nudged along by extraterrestrial help. Right. And that's been retconned over the years in comics to at times say that's why there are mutants in the X-Men in the Marvel Universe or that's why we have superheroes at all on Earth in the Marvel Universe because of Thanos has been retconned and apparently is going to be in the movies as well into being an Eternal. It's all because of this, you know, and, and, and the movie leans into it in ways that are intriguing where the Celestial's name sounds, if you squint and mumble, it sounds a lot like in, like an ancient Hebrew or Aramaic word for for God. Yeah. The Eternals intentionally have names that are reminiscent of Mythological figures, yeah. Which, I'm here for that. I love the idea that the stories that live to this day are kind of, you know, whisper down the line over history, mutated versions of this. Like, that's kind of fun and cool and the little references to King Arthur or just thinking, oh, Macari sounds like Mercury, the speed god. You know, all that stuff is is fun. Icarus flying into the sun. I love that. But then you get into this moral place that they cannot extricate themselves from where they're like, well, did humans do this or did gods do this? <laughs> right. And and this, so you end up with, with Fastos crying at Hiroshima and you also end up with an argument that the movie doesn't actually want to linger on, which is the one that fuels the final conflict, which is, is it worth sacrificing an entire planet of Dane Whitman's in order to let billions other people live? That's heady. Yeah. That is, and not even, you know, I'm sure there are people on Red Pill YouTube being like, (laughs) yeah, you know what I mean? (laughs) The Icarus was right. But like, the movie can't go there. Right. It, it, it's the equivalent of the sex scene. It's like, we'll rely on a beach and maybe think that they're sexing, but let's move on quickly. And and that's, that. I agree with you, that is a bummer. Well, but, it'll be interesting to see where, where it goes from here. Obviously, there's a couple of post-credit sequences that they promise the Eternals will continue. Can, before we go into the future, can I just, can I just talk about Brian Tyree Henry for a second? Sure. Guys, I'm talking about Angelina Jolie as a national resource. Brian Tyree Henry is a international treasure. This guy is such a magical actor. He's such a beautiful actor. Like, he is just a... We talk about good acting, like people have access to the emotions. He apparently has, like, a tissue paper scrim between his public face and what is motivating his his deepest heart. He is so compelling to me. I just love watching him act. And he bought me into this movie. Yeah. Because he loved his son so much. And, you know, I'm not so much of a cynic to think that uh, it doesn't matter that he is a loving husband to a man and a father of a son in a Marvel movie that was designed to, you know, make millions in box office around the world. Like, I thought that was really significant. And I just thought his performance saved the movie for me, honestly. Once he was on the team, I was like, oh, okay, I'm I'm rooting for them now. I want them to succeed. I just... (laughs) I'm trying to get I'm trying to get over like the Kit Harrington situation. Let's talk about it. I'm going to clear the space here because it's so weird. It's so 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 he's, weird. He's he's in three scenes in the beginning of the movie. Yeah. He shows up on FaceTime like once or twice to make jokes about King Midas. And then is in a scene at the end of the film and in a stinger. So his entire yeah. presence in the movie is to set up here's the spoiler if you guys don't know to set up this his his role as the Black Knight going forward who has like a sword that can, what, destroy anything, but also kills you. 
it's a cursed sword, and he's cursed a long-running character. He's on the Avengers, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe he's going to be part of like a new iteration of the Avengers with Blade or something. Like that's cool. Like I like it, but it is really crazy to see his journey from like just like like obviously carrying around Jon Snow like a lot of weight for a while, and d- then dipping his toe back into this and getting sucked into the whirlpool of you better you better sign up for nine more movies of this, my guy. Well, also, he and Richard Madden, like Rob Stark and Jon Snow, switched personalities in this movie. Yeah. So maybe that was a fun acting exercise for them, where one was carrying the burden of the world and the other one was just like, hey, man, like I just get, I'm here to wear a coat. Um, (laughs) That is also a great example of why these movies cannot be great, which is everyone involved in writing and frankly designing, and I mean that affectionately, these movies, because they are are architected or whatever. They weren't wrong to say that, like, if Cersei is going to be the heart of the movie, she needs to have some sort of love attachment, whether it's romantic or not, to humanity. And there needs to be someone to play that role. There needs to be a human figure. And then, you know, the bright boys on the 38th floor are like... (laughs) but what if the boyfriend was an Avenger to be? Like yeah. that's when you you overthink it and you're like, well, we could use this to triple backdoor a story that people don't even know they're getting yet. And so you have a character who fulfills no real purpose other than to hug Gemma Chan, which by the way, great. That seems like a nice thing to be able to do. And then at the end is like, something I've been meaning to tell you about my cursed blade and my family's history. No, you weren't. Come on. That was silly. All this like a child trapped who isn't a child trapped in a child's body, that's wild shit. Yeah. That's a whole Blumhouse movie. Or <laughs> or not, it could go in so many different directions and there's no room for it, you know? Like Lauren Ridloff as Makari is a deaf superhero. She was awesome. Yeah. But what did... The Lauren Ridloff Barry Keown movie would have been cool. It would have been really cool. And them in space, great. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the the the, the larger connective pieces before we wrap up. I'm curious about when, what decisions were made about what to do with those stingers and when they were made. I think that, because there's a version of looking at this where it's Feige in his office watching the final director's cut of this and being like, shit. (laughs) Like, we need to Guardians of the Galaxy this up stat. And we need to give people a reason to care about any of this going forward. So we're going to bring in I mean, Star Fox and Pip are not words I ever expected to say publicly as an adult. (laughs) I know who they are, but I wasn't going to tell you guys that. Right. You know what I mean? Like, that is definitely something I expected James Gunn to be like, now guess what? Oh, yeah, we're doing it. But they're doing it in the most serious, po-faced Marvel movie of them all and casting the world's biggest teen pop star who has all the acting charisma of the world's teen pop star, as far as I can tell. No disrespect. It's well cast, because the yeah. character is like an intergalactic cele- sex celebrity. So that's clever He was and better, funny. I think, maybe cast as like a prick on the beach at Dunkirk than as right. the most... I mean, he is, by to some people, like the most charming person in the world. And I guess that's a good character for him to play, if that's the case. The other one is, obviously, we've alluded to, is is Kit Harrington getting what a call from... 
from Blade, from Herschel Ali. Well, the call from behind him. The call's coming yeah. from inside the manor. <laughs> exactly. It's Herschel Ali just dropping in for a little uh, a little. I don't know, man. I don't know. So we've got like Hawkeye is coming. I mean, we could do more State of Marvel stuff. We always do. But I thought this was like an, a very interesting failure that taught me a lot about myself as much as <laughs> I learned about what did the you like? What What did you like about it? And I'm not asking that to be a dick. I'm just curious because... It can, it's okay if it's not an interesting failure to you, if it's just a failure. I thought that there were, it, it's, it's easy to be like Barry Keown was good and I liked that. And Brian Tyree Henry is charming and I liked that. And I liked the idea of Icarus as this kind of double agent, but also like only I can see the truth here. So I have to like yeah. lead humanity to its doom and then finds out he's wrong because of love and flies into the sun. Although I love all the like, is Icarus really dead posts that I'm seeing online. There are elements of that, of it that I liked. I think that I have a little bit less interest in the cosmic and in the mythological when it comes to this stuff. I'm a little bit more of like a, a hell's kitchen guy who just wants to see like daredevil punch a dude. But you're right. And I think that this was, you know, it, it was interesting to see them test the limits of what this story can be, but I think that this fundamentally isn't what they do. You know, it just isn't what they do. And, and you can feel that in the struggle of the movie to kind of have coherent sense or to connect. It, it would have been better if they had never talked about Captain Rogers and Mr. Stark. Sure. Because it just asks, it just opens up more questions. I mean, the, the beauty of the comics is that, especially in like the 60s and 70s and 80s, like Jack Kirby could do this. And it wasn't like Storm and Wolverine were like, What's that giant space god coming out of the Arctic Circle? They didn't know about it. didn't matter. But that's not the storytelling project that Kevin Feige and Disney and the MCU are doing. It doesn't really work like this on this scale. And, 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 and what you get instead is these awkward one-liners wedged into this, you know. And, and that's why I think there's that hard turn at the end of this into Guardians of the Galaxy stuff, where if you're floating around in space— it's all the Moss Eisley Cantina out there, man. It's sure. all jokes. Sure. And maybe it's better for it. We can wrap it up there. Uh, Andy and I will be back on Sunday night to talk about Succession. Uh, so we look forward to seeing you then. And then next week, we'll be discussing, as we discussed, Bear of Kingstown, Shrink Next Door. And uh, hopefully, we'll be joined by um, Sam Boyd from Love Life to talk about his show. I'm also watching, I'm on Zoom, I'm watching Chris's face. And I think I want to talk a little bit more about Eternals next week because I have some like deeper celestials I'd like to name check. And <laughs> I I, love, and we I, haven't even gotten to the world I love how much this, this, this brought something out of you. That was, I wanted to clear out for you today. Is it weird that I kind of loved parts of it? I don't know why. No, what's I think that's cool. I think it's cool. I, I wasn't trying to, I'm not trying to be like, this movie sucked. I'm just like, oh. But it, but it objectively often <laughs> did. Like, I'm not <laughs> arguing that. I just, man. Well, all right. We were produced as always by uh, Kai McMullen. We'll see you guys on uh, Sunday night. Kai is the real eternal for putting up with us. Seriously. <laughs>